Welcome again, everybody. Uh, it is Thanksgiving Day for Canadians and Indigenous Peoples Day for Americans. So let's start by acknowledging how incredible it is to have all of the members that were able to come today and a few members that normally come kind of checked in and said they couldn't come. But I, I definitely am thinking of them as well, because this was a really great book. And that was the feedback I got from folks who uh, who couldn't come, who wanted to come. Uh, I guess we should start by acknowledging the land that we're on. Um, this uh, book club starts in Mokinstis or Calgary, and that's on the Blackfoot Confederacy. So the Blackfeet south of the U.S. and Canadian border, north of the border, the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani, uh, 1877, fairly recently, Treaty 7 was signed, which also brought in the Stoney, uh, as well as the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. So yeah, I always like to start off with a land acknowledgement to get us going. I usually try to prioritize uh, Indigenous voices and uh, QT BIPOC and go from there. So for folks who uh, are new, but I don't think we have anyone new today. So just a, a little reminder as we get going today. Um, the book that we have today is Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice in Canada by Harold R. Johnson. And I have a CBC clip that I thought maybe I'd play, but I thought maybe we could do a bit of a, um, check in first to see how people felt about the book and then we'll press play on that to see it, it it's 20 minutes I didn't listen to the whole thing so I don't know if it's all on this on the book or if it's like only the first half but um yeah I thought thought we might might like that so um I'll invite I think Kathy is the only Indigenous person here other than myself um Kathy did you want to chime in your thoughts on this book I really liked the book. I wish it was a lot longer. Um, I want to look into his other books because apparently he wrote a book about his brother. Um, and I think there should be a law against a book that makes you cry by the third page. I don't know why, but I did. I, I'm just like right? so emotional. But like, Kathy, I think it was really like the moment it, because you remember that moment. I remember that moment, the uh, bushy verdict came out and how devastating it was. I cried like a baby those first three pages too, for the same reason. And because yeah. of the hate that I was seeing in Alberta here, I'll tell you about the Métis thing later, but I feel you on that emotion. Yeah, it was, it was tough. And it was just like, okay, let's get it out and get on with it. <laughs> That's all. That's it. Ah, okay. Sounds good. Um, Okay, um, I guess I'll just quickly say this, I realized I was almost dog uh, earing every single page. And I was like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> so obviously, I'm really enjoying the book. There's some pieces that I don't love his uh, perspective of, you know, I, I know he knows a lot about alcohol, but you know, I think that there's a difference between being a lawyer and understanding addiction in being in the mental health world. So I've always, I've known about his other book, Firewater, and I've always had hesitated getting it because sometimes when people don't deal with internalized oppression, they write really shitty books. Like I'm, I could name a few that we've done with this book club, almost all by male authors. And, um, 
And I think this book, he was reflecting on oppression dynamics for the first time. So I would argue all of his previous work is probably like, uh, I hate natives, I hate alcohol. And, you know, rather than seeing it more through the eyes of colonialism, and even the way he talked about the Glad Jew Report and colonialism in this book, I was like, I don't think you're quite there, buddy. I don't think you quite understand it. But uh, that's like, out of a hundred percent, that's like, you know, the one percent critique I'd give up. 99% of it, I actually think that every judge, cop, uh, anyone affiliated with the legal system should kind of have to read this book. This would be the book that I would recommend a law society or anybody associated with the justice system because this is like, I love Jody Wilson Rainbow's book. Don't get me wrong, books, I should say, and the solutions in them. But I think this kind of talks about it in a way that the regular beat cop, the regular lawyer or a judge would understand. And I love the way he made fun of Harvard and the arrogant professors, like they deserve it for everything they're worth, for the way they are, they treat people. One of my favorite stories he told was being in law school and having a coworker or a colleague. And she was like a, a mother of two kids and the mom, her mom and the handicapped brother was living in the same house. And so she just, she could, she was working full time, trying to do this and just couldn't make ends meet whatsoever. And he just was like, it, it wasn't her failure. It was absolutely the failure of the, the system and the way it works. And he actually said that the trades, like this should be a, like a trade. And he learned more from trades than he did law school. And I really loved the way he said, you know, you don't have to be smart to go to law school at all. It's just a matter of privilege to go. And I, I so I really appreciated his like humanity in all of this and talking about it from that point of view. And I was reading that one part where I think he disclosed, and for those who are triggered, I'm really sorry, uh, childhood, I mean, all of these book clubs are traumatizing and triggering, so I apologize. Um, but anyway, he kind of talked about child sexual assault through his own eyes and what that would look like through the system. And it doesn't sound like he ever told anybody that, but that would explain his anger and a lot of that self-hate that I, that I was reading. So now maybe he was just saying, what if I, it was me as a 10 year old boy who happened to be, and he, he, you know, he, he was pretty spe specific on the details. So I really got the impression it was, it was um, like his real story. So at least that's can explain the trauma that he has endured as part of his story and why he's angry at the world and that maybe took him a little longer to do that in the inner work um anyway i uh i really enjoy this book i really think that everyone should have to read it who talks has an opinion of folks with addiction folks with uh the justice system ties and systemic racism. That was another thing I didn't think he quite understood. Like at one time he's like, there's not really systemic racism in the system. It's more the people. And it's like, mm, I think it's both buddy. But you know, that bigger picture, he, he really nails it overall. So I really enjoyed this book and uh, yeah, I have a lot more to say, but I also want to give space to other people. So maybe we'll go Kat, Rosemary, uh, Mike, uh, and we'll go from there just in alphabetical order of the participants.
Hello. Um, I also really love this book too. Um, you said everything I wanted to say about law school because I thought that was brilliant. It's like, I never thought of it like that before. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, how they do tend to make it sort of an elitist exclusionary, you know, club that uh, that people are privileged to join. Um, I also uh, read a lot of this book when I was sick, so uh, some of it didn't stick with me, but um, I loved the whole um, uh, final chapter on, um, on uh, the, um, closing argument chapter. I thought that was really great. And how he talks about redemption instead of, instead of um, deterrence and how brilliant that would be. Like, wouldn't that be amazing if we allowed people to, to do that for themselves rather than, um, you know, try and prevent crime or punish them for their crime, but bring them back into community and help them heal. That's all I got to say right now. That was a really great point, though, because that was kind of throughout his entire thing was that he'd rather see instead of 300 officers, 300 trauma counselors, right? Like that was throughout the whole, his whole book. And I love that. Um, yeah. So I think, Rosemary, you're up. Yeah, I, I had not been aware of the fact that incarceration rates have been increasing so dramatically since 1960. And like Kat, I, I really appreciated how he framed it in, in terms of uh, redemption versus deterrence and that he really, he made such a strong case about why incarceration is simply not working. And he called it a, a contagion that it actually reproduces itself. And, and the other thing I found interesting in terms of reading, and I, we did read Clifford, you know, he, he's a really good writer. He just carries you along. But <clears throat> I was starting to become quite frustrated about what, what to do about it, what to do about it. And then that's when he started going into his arguments about what could be done. So I, I, I was so happy to get to, to that point. But we're still left with the, well, I like what he says. He says, we can't wait. We can't wait to be given this. We need to take it. We need to assert it. We need to reassert our jurisdiction that, <clears throat> and he argues that under Treaty 6, they never gave up. They never gave up their jurisdiction over law and order. I really like the way he tied it back to treaty as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I, cause I, again, like if there's one thing that's upset me about the Israel Palestine thing, and I put it, I put it in my podcast today, like clearly people are not getting this whole treaty concept. They're not getting the land acknowledgement thing. They're not getting it. <laughs> so and I really like the way he kept referring back to it through the entire mm -hmm. book too. So yeah, he's a great storyteller. Uh, Mike. Hello. Um, yeah, actually it's, it's funny that um, to hear about treaty because actually that was the first thing I picked up on. Um, I, th I think my own personal reflection because, and I can't remember the exact date, but Treaty 7 Day was back in late September and 22nd. Um, and 
there was a webinar I was on from the University of Calgary, and I sort of, it reminded me that I actually, as a white settler, I don't really know that much about the treaties. Um, and that, like you always say, we're all partners in the treaty because the government of Canada signed on our behalf. Um, so I think I think that was a point. I started this book just after that. So I think it kind of just was another hammer on the nail to say you as a person don't know as much about the treaties as you should, right? And without getting too general about it, I would say a lot of people that I know and that I talk with, I would say it's very similar, right? That we as settlers don't know a lot about the treaties and we should know a lot more about the treaties. So I think that was my first point. And I think it was really an eye opener for me when he said the law, and I'm reading here, the law is best understood when seen from the perspective of the white colonial settlers. Um, and that he, he sort of had to think about things from that perspective in order to understand. Because he also did say that everything that was done was legal, but that there's a difference between being legal and fair, right? And that allowing more perspectives and especially indigenous perspectives into the law will increase the fairness. Um, so yeah, that, that was it for me. Um, I've missed a couple meetings, so I'm glad to be back here and uh, just happy to hear what everyone else has to say. Gratefully for that, Mike. Thanks so much. And I'm glad you got you caught that UFC uh, seminar as well. And I got the video release of it, so I got to watch it still. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch that. So because I, I always like hearing elders talk about it through their lens the most. Um, is it McKenna? I'm sorry, Michaela. M. M. Kaylee. I can't remember your first name. I'm sorry, Marla. I think I'm on my I'm on my work laptop. That's sorry about that, folks. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Marla. I know your name. I should have. I don't know. I couldn't get it. It is okay. I understand moments like that. Uh, happens to me more than more than I would like. Um, yeah, I really I really liked this book. I think um, it is a very accessible read, and I think it's something that you could easily hand to just about anybody. Uh, and, um, it's sort of a non-threatening read, I guess, right? It's, it's not, you know, as in your face as some could be about, um, how, you know, how things could be different. So I could see myself like giving this to certain people, <laughs> reading other material, I liked too that he reflected like his, I enjoyed his reflections and kind of, um, you know, coming to the realization that being in the system for so long, uh, you know, was there good in that? And um, I kind of appreciate when people are, take that perspective of trying to look back on, on what you've done and, um, 
and the system that's around you and are you able to really make the change that you wanted to make um the one thing that he kind of mentioned this and and um i've heard other people say this too is does it really change the system to have more indigenous people right or do you just have to tear the whole thing down <laughs> uh because yeah him talking about he kind of lost his indigeneity from from being in the system for so long and having to prove himself and go through law school and practice like you know the western system and everything is is done in the western way um so what good is that i guess um so that that was a good reflection for him to point out the redemption versus deterrence too i really thought that was a great um chapter when he's writing about that um and just again like all all these reads we've been doing talking about like showing the data that shows that you know the status quo doesn't work like how many dwings does it have to be said on so many different topics and um you know here we are again like another the thousands right thousands of studies that are saying that it doesn't it doesn't work um and it would be really interesting to see a system where redemption was actually like honestly um embraced and and what that would do for our communities um and when he talked about um the reluctance to testify against your community member because they might be the person that's supplying you the meat or the whole community meat or you know is the one that would look after your kids or do a favor or something um yeah that really hit home i think um when he talked to about uh the challenge of like redemption is a good thing but there's also the challenge of having the ability to effectively do it with the way our system is set up and i think about this being in um nonprofit land that you may want to do things better and differently but the resources just aren't there uh, the wait lists are too long or it doesn't exist or it's too expensive or whatever it is that um, it's hard to actually, it's hard to do it the way things are structured. We really have to, we really have to build it from, from the ground up. Um, and land acknowledgement. So, so <clears throat> my, my workplace we're talking about, we're actually going to have a session next year about uh, are they okay anymore? The way we're doing them, are they meaningful? Uh, what is the point? Should we be doing it differently or at all? Like, how do we, so we're going to have a discussion about, um, what does it mean? And why are we saying these words? Like, is there any intent behind that? And so I'm looking forward to that discussion. Um, and I think that's all I have to say. I, it was a, it was, you always have good reads, Michelle. <laughs> Open I, well, the door I know to some more thinking. <laughs> somebody recommended this book and I was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that one. And it it's actually been like an highlight. I was kind of like, oh, we'll read it. 
And then I started getting into it. And, you know, like you kind of mentioned stats. Um, I love stats. So they're my favorites. So when he had that embedded almost, I think it was like page four or something. I was like, yes, I'm, I love this. This is the, like, it's evidence-based, right? Um, his opinion, obviously not, but, um, but he has so much uh, knowledge, right? And life experience that it's like, yeah. this is a great book. So yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I am going to invite Shelly to on our, because Mike did. How did I accidentally so I, have Mike talk before Shelly? I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. um, I really like this book. I liked when he talked about um, justice, the emblem of justice being a blind woman on the scale, one hand on the sword and the other, but you can't judge me if you refuse to look at me. Like, how can you judge somebody if you, justice isn't black and white. There's so many circumstances. So I really like that one. And Albert Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I think we all kind of touched on that, but he really put it in with the definition of insanity um, because they are expecting different results and the stats show that they're not. So they need to do something different. And I think it's with defund the police is put the put the money in the 300 trauma workers, not the, the 300 police officers. They, they're not equipped to deal with trauma or in mental health or the social work stuff. Um, and I found that when people talk about death of somebody really close to them, I just bawl. Through the last part of the book, the afterward, I just bawled when he talked about his father and his mom and how much the, the, they meant to him. Um, and I did pick up on the deterrence belief system. I liked that as well, because that makes more sense. And talked about the trees. And one more, I, I had some tabs. That, um, that they were they told the parents that they they could not teach their kids Cree. And I thought like that was just indoctrination from the very beginning that they had to be because they were told that the children spoke Cree that they would not be well in school. Like that's just bullshit. Um and I think that um the the so much language has been lost because of that. But it was a really good book, and I did like how he talked about the stats and then weaved in his experiences. But I think that's all I have to say. Thanks, as always, Shelley. Thanks, Michelle. Um, as others have said, I found this um, a very accessible book. I, I kind of... Um, procrastinated a little bit to open it up because I was thinking the legal system I was just I wasn't sure um how I would get through it and uh got through it quite a bit faster than I had anticipated so just his writing was so easy to read and um the points he was making just really powerful points so uh thank you for choosing this book and and for getting us there um I don't have a lot to add that's different than what others have said I think most of my notes 
um, keep coming back to that idea of redemption versus deterrence. Um, so I think I reflected a lot and, and as others have been talking as well, um, we're really talking about the, the different worldviews at play here. Um, and just there, there was one quote that he had that I wrote down that I think kind of summarized that for me and talked about, so race is so fundamental to our existence that the refusal of justice system to consider it means the system has closed its mind to our reality. So I just thought that was a really um, powerful way of summarizing that um, it's all operating from one worldview and therefore it makes a lot of sense that it's not working um, for everyone and, and then makes such good uh, evidence informed points on how that looks and what the impacts have been. Um, and so then I think it leaves me thinking, you know, if I didn't, if I was slow to want to pick this book up, if I was slow to want to read about the justice system, you know, how do, how are we going to get further to understanding what those things are? Because I think um, excellent points have already been made about changes that would benefit all of us. And um, we aren't going to get there unless we have a, a significant amount of people being aware of what those changes could look like. I mean, I think we're dealing a lot with status quo has so much momentum and so much um, power in our days. And um, so what I was writing as others were talking was just thinking, you know, in order to reflect on other perspectives, we have to do a lot of pausing of fear and assumptions. Um, I do think that the fear and assumptions is where we're like, well, that could never work. Um, so I, I'm reflecting a lot on that um and then really appreciate the insights from others just to to think about where he individually was you know i could tell he had gone through a lot of growth um throughout his career and and his life and um he did seem to have quite a lot of um awareness but then as you said at the beginning michelle like there's a lot of um internalized oppression uh, and pieces like that that were also there so that was helpful for me to kind of look back and and remember that any book is written from the perspective of one author and and then his experience is going to be um, framed by that but um, not much more to add other than uh, yeah we it's worth reading it's a book worth picking up um, just to understand the justice system I think I haven't had interactions that have pushed me to have to understand these things and um I think it's reminding me that's that's what they tell you in like elementary and middle school when they're like we're in a democracy and there's responsibilities that come with that and and all of those things I I have a daughter in school they're they're studying those pieces right now and um it doesn't really resonate at that point you're kind of like yeah yeah I know it's important um but we don't uh I'm I'm just reflecting on how do we how do we keep that conversation going. So thanks very much. Well, brilliant. I love hearing everybody's um, you know thoughts on on this book. I th there's two things I wanted to bring up, and Kathy kind of started it with it, where the first few pages are really heart wrenching because I'm sure we all have a, a memory, unfortunately, probably a tra traumatic memory of when Gerald Stanley was found not guilty and. Uh, just by chance at the same time, um, I had been given messages between the widow of one of the Métis uh, hunters that was murdered in close to Glendon, Alberta. And uh, 
I follow her and she was posting pictures of a swastika uh, on a on a property along with a sign of you know people can die and um, they had reported it to the RCMP and the RCMP was telling them to take it down and she told me that she was getting death threats from it so you know I was I was so angry and sad and mad and traumatized and wanting to go up there and punch someone and, you know, and, or just going up there to hug her. You kind of have all those, those emotions all at once. And then I read this like, Hey, remember when Gerald Stanley was found not guilty? I'm like, yes, I do remember it. It was awful. And uh, you know, so I, I had that kind of the two things combined. Um, kind of looping back to what Wendy was talking about though I I wanted to bring to attention stop the stack YYC um they are on social medias the they're on Twitter they're on Facebook they're on TikTok and they're trying to educate Canadians especially like when what Wendy said you know those of us who have not been touched by the justice system in that way and the privilege we have because we've never had to do that um Stop the Stack is trying to educate people of how the justice system will throw as many charges at a, uh, usually a black activist. This has been documented in the black activism communities for years where they'll throw a whole bunch of charges in the hopes that they'll stick. And that in that way, you know, when people break parole, et cetera, like it just ruins their life, right? You mm-hmm. have to put all your money towards legal defense. You have to try to exonerate your name. You'd be looked at as a criminal for the rest of your life. Um, and how that really is like a technique the justice system uses against um, activists and people of color. And uh, I was at, and, and Rosemary was there. We were at the Bo- Calgary Board of Education um, with the queer community. And across mm-hmm. the street was the anti queer community <laughs> and uh we were we were there and adora was or not adora uh taylor mcnally was asked to leave and uh so today she was also asked to leave she went to the justice for palestinian um rally and she was asked to leave again so and that's one of the conditions that the police and the legal system have in her so-called parole is that if they ask her to leave that she has to leave and then they all have a warrant out for her arrest. So she lives on absolute anxiety 24 seven. And while they're doing that to Adora and to Taylor right now, when will it be my turn? When will it be Autumn Eagle speakers or any other um, activist, Chantel Chagnon, you know, any activist in, in our city, when will it be their turn, right? So I think it's really important that we um, understand that this is a movement uh, they are looking for letters of support so if you know Taylor McNally or Adora Nufer and you can give them a, a letter of support they would really appreciate that um, I was going to give them one and if they liked it make a TikTok of it and put it out there because tomorrow Taylor's in school or uh, court and um, she was in court last week and she has to pay $3,500 there's no deadline, but the point is that she owes the government $3,500 for existing and having the audacity for standing up for Black people's rights. So this is an important conversation to be having with the exact book we just read about peace and good order. Because while they're choosing to do this to uh, Taylor and Adora, it could easily be on the Indigenous community. And especially in light of 
you know, this Palestine and Israel issue, and there being a huge division in Canada for folks who understand reconciliation, racism, and Indigenous rights and land acknowledgements versus people who were adamantly against it anyway and are for fascism, right? So we're, we're having a major conflict. This is a major impetus moment, right? Um, any uh, thoughts or reflections on that? I like to call those people Trumpers. <laughs> I was just, uh, yeah, reading somebody's post about it. And I just said, you know, I support them. I don't care what anybody thinks about me, but I support Palestinian. And then I ended with land back, you know, like, you know, if the world wants to turn a blind eye for 75 years, then, you know, what can you expect, right? right i know it's thanksgiving so maybe people aren't too interested in having that discussion so i'm going to share a screen and uh listen to the this clip i have um oh yeah and our next book club is like a 400 page final report pdf and although it was written in june of 2021 um there's not like an updated one at all. So uh, just so you know, and you're ready for it. I opened it up and went, whoa, this is going to be a good one. And what, it, what is it, Michelle? What, what A report on what? Oh, our next book club is, I'll uh, get you the link here. I have Carla Mark on. It's a report to guide the implementation of a national action plan on violence against women and gender-based violence. They have like a few pages on the national inquiry, which I find so insulting because it's like, you know, so we have to whitewash the national inquiry in order to and rename it and make a new 400 page report. So anyway, I have this copied and I'll send it, the link to you in this chat here in a moment. And I'll do that while we listen to this. <coughs> Harold R. Johnson is a member of the Montreal Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. You guys can hear Early this? in his life, he joined the Canadian Navy, so. and he's been a logger, trapper, fisher, heavy equipment operator, firefighter, and miner, among other things. He left mining to study law at the University of Saskatchewan and did his Master's of Law at Harvard. After years of practicing, he left the profession because he believes the justice system harms Indigenous people, and he argues his case in Peace and Good Order, the case for Indigenous justice in Canada. His latest book is Cry Wolf, Inquest into the True Nature of a Predator. He writes about respecting and honoring the wolf, about traditional Indigenous teachings about wolves and their relationship with the greatest invasive species on Earth, us. Harold now devotes his time fully to writing. For many years, he and his wife Joan lived on his family trapline in northern Saskatchewan. Recently, though, he relocated to Gabriola Island, BC, and that's where we recorded this conversation, outside and socially distanced back in the summer. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about, and it's really, it's really messing with my head, is about story and the current thinking that you're doing about story. Yeah. What sort of landed on you 
and got you thinking about story in a way that you have not been for all the years that you've been telling stories and writing them? It came out spontaneously in a conversation I was having. Somebody asked me a question and I said, we have to change the story we're telling ourselves. And I blew myself away with that and then started thinking about story and took that idea home and sat on it for a long time and then worked with it. And the more I thought about story, the more I realized that absolutely everything is story. I am story, you are story, the universe is story. All these things that we've come to believe in are just things that we made up. Um, colonization, you know, this powerful story of the Aboriginal people as victims of colonization. And that story is told not about us as much as to us. And we've come to believe this story that we were victims of colonization. And you look, it's just a story. And you look back, what is, the, there's other stories. Every story has a another story to it. So the story of colonization is about Christopher Columbus going to look for spice and perfume. And the reason he needed spice and perfume is because where he lived, they didn't bathe. You got two baths in your life, once when you were born and once when you died. So they stunk. So the perfume is really good if the people around you all stink. So they really needed perfume. They needed spice because they didn't know how to cure meat. And if you're going to eat rotten meat, it's good to have spice on it. So he went looking for spice and perfume. The society that he came from was a feudal system with a lord very rigid hierarchies. Everybody had their place. Everybody knew their place. There was no such thing as private property. It was tenure. So my grandfather farmed this land. My dad farmed this land. I'm farming this land. My kid's going to farm this land. Tenure. The lowest people in that hierarchy were lordless men. So outlaws living in the forest and merchants walking between villages with pack sacks full of pots and pans. Columbus gets to America, finds us, and people start coming over. And the only ones who can come over are people who aren't tied to the castle and the structures there. So the merchants come over and they take back shiploads of gold. So the wealth of America is taken back by the merchants. They discover food, real food. You know that picture of the pilgrims at the first Thanksgiving and the boards that they made a table out of and all of the food on that table? That's all Indian food. That's all North American food. Pumpkins, corn, beans, squash. Even the turkey is American food. Potatoes, tomatoes, all of that is ours. The, the nations that they came from, their food was oats, wheat, and barley. That's the stuff that didn't go bad. Yeah, uh, that's what they lived on. They didn't know about all of this food. Their societies had been decimated by the Black Plague. The population was way down. I think three quarters of them got uh, died in the plagues. So they get food and medicine and the population in Europe starts to go up. And then the wealth. So their entire society is turned upside down. So these people who used to be at the lowest, the merchants who were at the lowest level, are now wealthier than the monarchs who've wasted all of the treasure. The treasuries are empty because they've been fighting 
wars between each other for hundreds of years. So they're broke and the merchants come back with money and they're wealthier than the monarchs and the whole society is turned upside down. And the money from America pays for the industrial revolution. And we've, Aboriginal people have changed Europe. We did more to change Europe with ideas of anarchy, uh, democracy, all of these ideas. Sustainability. Even, yeah, yeah, all of these ideas have completely changed Europe. We've did more to change them than they've done to us. I live in a cabin on my trap line. I fish, hunt, trap, and gather. Our languages are still strong in the northern part of the country. We haven't been changed. It's just the story and how you tell the story that impacts how we see ourselves. What's the connection between story and culture? They're the same thing. Stories are extremely powerful. Stories can heal you. Stories can kill you. So placebo, we all know that. I give you a sugar pill, I tell you it's medicine. If you take the pill and believe the story, 30 to 50% of people experience a reduction in symptoms. Stories can heal. Stories can kill. Nocebo. I give you the exact same sugar pill. This time the story I tell you is that it's poison. If you take the pill and believe the story, you're going to get sick. You could possibly die. There was a young man, 26 years old, took 29 pills that he thought were antidepressants. His heart rate went down. His blood pressure went down. He required medical intervention to stay alive. They had him on intravenous. And he didn't recover until they told him that all he had taken were sugar pills. Stories can kill. You were a practicing lawyer for many, many years. And you had to create arguments for the people you were representing. Perhaps you had to tell stories. I did. When I was defending, working as defense counsel, I told myself a story that I was the champion of the people and I was keeping Aboriginal people out of jail. And then I had this client who hired me because he was charged with assaulting his spouse. And I flew up into a far northern community and represented him. And I got rid of the charge for him. He paid me. He got charged with hitting her again. And again, I went up north and got the charges dealt with for him. And then the third time he hired me, all of a sudden I felt like this man thinks he can beat up his wife anytime he wants and Harold Johnson's going to get him off. And I flew into the northern community and took him out behind the community hall where we were holding court. And I said, buddy, if you beat her up again, I'm going to kick out of you. Now go in there and plead guilty and I'll keep your sorry ass out of jail. And I knew I was on the wrong side. Then 2008 happened, the economy collapsed, and there was a job at prosecutions, and I thought I'd take that till that all blew over. And then as a prosecutor... Crown I, prosecutor. Crown prosecutor, yeah. I knew that 95% of the people in court are Aboriginal people, but 100% of the victims are Aboriginal people. And I just told myself a different story. I said, I'm representing the victims. I'm representing the women who are getting beaten up. And I was able to tell myself that story for a long time. Until and, when? Until I saw that 
most of the people who came to court were there because of something they did while they were intoxicated by alcohol. And we're just dealing with alcohol abuse. And I'm actually, I realized I was making things worse instead of better for Aboriginal communities. And I couldn't tell myself that story anymore. And when I got to that point, I was twisting and turning, trying to figure out how I was going to get out of this. Crown prosecutors get paid really well. <laughs> and it was kind of, how am I going to, you know, do this? I've got myself into a lifestyle that I like. And I was twisting and turning. I knew I was going to leave. I just didn't know how. And then an opportunity arose. I met a deputy minister of justice and we're talking about the problems in the north and I'm explaining it's all about alcohol and Aboriginal people have to change the story we tell ourselves about alcohol. And from that conversation, we created the Northern Alcohol Strategy. And then I went to work. After four years of working in Larange, working with people, getting the entire community involved, creating conversations, and that's how you change story. You change the conversation that people are having and invite them into the conversation, create safe places to speak. And the story changes. And after four years, the crime rate in Larange went down. RCMP calls for service related to alcohol went down. Emergency room visits related to alcohol went down. School attendance went up. It can be done. In peace and, and good order, you talk about how the, the fundamental difference between First Nations uh, is the idea of justice. Mm -hmm is much more along the lines of redemption. And the way the Canadian justice system is set up doesn't allow for that possibility. It allows greatly for punishment. Yeah. How do you think it can be moved over to redemption, or is that the right question? That's the wrong question. Okay. The question is, what's the story? What is the story that we tell ourselves that we call justice? Justice doesn't exist. It's a story that we made up. A wolf kills an elk. There's no revenge. There's nothing just about it. It just happens. There's nothing in nature that is we can call justice. Going along with that story of justice and judgment day is this idea of deterrence. That if you do something wrong and I punish you for that, you will learn your lesson and you won't do it again. And people who see you being punished won't do it. And it doesn't work. We know that if we send someone to jail, if we incarcerate someone, they are more likely to commit offenses when they get out than if we didn't incarcerate them. We began incarcerating Aboriginal people in about 1960. Before that, we incarcerated people of Eastern European ancestry or French. The Canadian justice system has always been racist. What happened in 1960? Why is that a, a line? 1960, Aboriginal people in Saskatchewan were given the right to go into the bar and the right to vote. And for some reason it changed and we, they began policing us. 
and the incarceration rate of Aboriginal people has climbed steadily since 1960. And today we're incarcerating more women and children than at any time before. Tinkering with the system doesn't fix anything. It's not changing. My younger brother had been killed by a drunk driver. And I'd gone to court and spoken at the sentencing and told the judge, I have no animosity towards this man. And gave suggestions on what might help things. And the judge sentenced Hillary Cook to three years. And sending Hillary Cook away for three years didn't help my family at all. My brother didn't come back. His children didn't get their father. His grandchildren didn't get their grandfather back. And we were left with this big hole in our lives that the justice system couldn't fill. This, this becomes a story of redemption, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yeah. And then it didn't do Hillary any good. And I wanted to write about that, how useless that sentence was. And I called Hillary, and he agreed to meet me for coffee. And we talked about it. What, what was that meeting like? It was tense for the first few minutes. And then we just recognized each other as human beings and talked about it. And when the, our meeting was over, I needed some facts. I, in the original draft, I said he had a 13-year-old daughter. I was wrong. He had a 13-year-old granddaughter that he left behind. So we corrected some of my errors. And then as we were leaving, he said he wanted to go to schools and talk to children about drinking and driving. And a couple of days later, I get a phone call from students against drinking and driving at the LaRange High School inviting me to come talk to them because I'd written a book called Firewater, How I'll Call Us Killing My People and Yours. <coughs> and I said, yeah, I'll come, but can I bring Hillary? And we went to the high school and stood in front of the students and Hillary talked about what it felt like to wake up in the morning not remembering what happened the night before, damage to his truck, and the RCMP are there telling him that he'd killed somebody. And we stood shoulder to shoulder, and I told the students what it felt like to lose a brother. We had a real powerful impact on those students. I heard later of students who went home to their parents and their parents are telling me, my son who really isn't interested in school, came home all excited and said, mom, dad, you won't believe what I heard in school today. And for Hillary, he's earning his redemption. And we're doing good. It's a very powerful story. And you tell it near the end of, of peace and good order. And it isn't your first brother who you've lost to a drunk driver. Sure. How have you found is forgiveness the right word? How have you been able to find a way through? I gotta tell you, 
traditional justice, Aboriginal people. So the most horrendous crime is murder. If you murdered my brother in the traditional way, I, there were four things I could do. I could murder you back. I could do nothing. I could demand gifts. You took my brother. I want a team of dogs. I want a horse. I want a teepee. I want a dozen buffalo robes. You should pay. And the highest form of, let's use the word justice, is I would adopt you as my brother and you would take my brother's place. And remembering that, I know that the man who killed my older brother Clifford, his life was changed. He, after, he never will, he went to court and beat the charge and some people would think that justice wasn't served. But I know that in the years following, he changed his life around. He quit being the partier. He raised a family, and he did a good job at it. And it was probably because he was impacted by the life that he took. So my brother's death created goodness in a different family. One of the, the things that we've talked about just sort of skatingly is your opening a school of visiting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to end this radio visit on your idea of the school of visiting. What, what makes a good visit? Time. No agenda. Love. Uh, there should be some food, uh, tea and coffee, water, if that's all you have, and time, and just accepting each other as human beings, and patience, and storytelling. And storytelling and learning to listen to stories. If you learn how to listen with your heart, so imagine where your heart is physically within your body on the left side of your chest until you're aware of it, till you can feel it, and then just let it go. And when you do that, practice listening with your heart, your brain does something. It stops thinking of the answer while the person mm. is speaking. And you can just listen. And when you can really listen, then you can hear. And after you've practiced this for a long time, you learn how to speak from the heart. And it's the same ritual. You imagine where your heart is and don't worry about the words that are gonna come out because they're gonna come out from the heart. And that's how you visit. Thank you for this good visit. And thank you for having me, Sheila. My conversation with Harold R. Johnson and thanks for the great visit. All right. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. I'll um, 
ask Kathy if she wants to start. Yes, I do. Um, just trying to see what it was. When he talks about hope and the marshmallow test and how the kids without hope take the marshmallow right away and the kids, other kids can wait the 15 minutes and get two marshmallows. Um, it really touched me because just the, when he talks about it in all the, the next, the following couple of chapters there, I won't read them, but uh, I will read the one chapter. Um, when hope has been siphoned away, all that remains is daily existence. When you have no hope of finding a job, why bother to look for one? When you have no hope of a college or university degree, why go to school? Um, um, and it goes on, but basically that sentence really, when hope has been siphoned away, all that remains is daily existence. And I feel that that's what's been done to the Indigenous people here in Canada, that they've taken all our hope away for so long. And then they want to sit there and point the finger and say, look at all your problems. What's wrong with you people? Um, it's really hard. I just wish there was some way that we could give this hope back to the next generation, like especially on the, the res, you know, where they're not able to access the amenities of an urban setting, right? You know, like that's, I think it's really important that we give hope to these kids. So that's all I'll be safe. Anybody else? quiet tonight that's okay um i wanted to when he talked about well he didn't his whole thing was about the story the story uh i don't know i struggle with that because i think i can i can intellectually understand what he's saying it's the story that's told um but there's there's the whole power in balance and the whole infrastructure and everything that goes along with that. So, um, I don't know. It's more than the story. <laughs> it would be nice if we could just turn around and, and wake up tomorrow and tell a different story, but there's, uh, it kind I, I don't know. It's weird because he says that and it kind of makes you a bit hopeful or makes me a bit hopeful that yes we can change things but then when you really kind of sit with it it's like oh my god there's just so much more behind that and it's it's not um it's more than the story anyway that's gonna sit with me for a while <laughs> okay cat did i see you unmute yourself for a minute there yeah. Um, well, in response to Marla, I just wanted to say, yeah, white people really have to take the story on board ourselves and try and change the narrative too. And we've got to fight this stupid white supremacy <laughs> that is our general story of Canada, really. Um, I just want to say thank you. I'm grateful. 
for you, Michelle, and the books and everyone here at the book club. And I wish you a very um, happy month. And <clears throat> Rosemary, I sent you the, uh, the word dot for the National Action Plan. Thank you. Awesome. Here. It's in PDF form. Isn't that, is that an issue though? Like the, no, mm -hmm. PDF is good. Okay. That's no. great. Oh it's no, not... it's an issue. Kat, did you do the transfer for her? Is that what I understand? Oh, thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. Like it's for over 400 pages. I want to say like 411 or something. So, uh, you know, obviously we don't want it inaccessible and uh, I'm going to post it publicly in the hopes that maybe it can bring in a few new folks in the hopes that uh, they'll, they'll come but you never know I think unless I post it like once every second other day or something that people don't see it because um indigenous women algorithms are at the bottom just like us being at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder <laughs> I'll see posts from my own friends like from four days ago and it's like four days ago does not help me and doesn't help them <laughs> so anyway well thanks folks uh for for coming in I'm just going to pause the recording for a sec So I just want to say again, thanks to everybody who came today and contributed. I really appreciate it. Really looking forward to next month's as well. Although a 400 page dossier, that's going to be like, if there's 30 days, we got to do a few, a few pages a day in order to get caught up there. But uh, I know I'm going to focus the MMIW part first because I, I, I've been saying this religiously on my podcast for like the last few months that I think it's a white uh, wash version of the national inquiry so they better have a good way of incorporating this um because i it, i just find it depressing that there's 231 calls to justice that nobody wants to care care about but yet we can take a whitewash version of it and maybe care about it right make make it a 400 page report on it so i don't know i'm hoping i'm wrong let's hope i'm wrong and uh, we'll go from there. And then, uh, yeah, so thanks folks for, for being a part of the book club and for constantly coming and the great feedback. If you have any book suggestions that you want for next year, please let me know. Um, I'm hoping, because I do have a stack of books. So I was just gonna put them together and make that next year's uh, book club. But um, you know, if there's one that I don't own yet and I want to get, I wanna do that one. And uh, Kat has already sent her list for next year to me. So Kat, do you want to talk about your book club at all real quick? Sure. Um, I don't really remember my list right now. <laughs> I'm just going to call it up. So um, what I usually tend to do is certain months have certain themes like January. It's always an Inuit book. So we're doing a True North Rising by Whit Fraser. I know he's a white guy, but uh, he is married to Mary Simon, so I'm going to give him a chance. Uh, February is um, related to Black History Month, so I've found uh, Rehearsals for Living by Robin Maynard and Leanne Bedosamasaki Simpson, which I'm excited about. Yeah. Um, March, April, and May, I've decided to focus on Treaty 7 Nations and learning more about them. Um, there's not specifically books about them yet um, for some of them, but March, I'm hoping to do Tsutina. Um, April, I'm hoping to do Irhe Nakoda. 
and there is perhaps a, a speaker that Rosemary knows that we might be able to get to come. And May, I was going to do uh, the Great Blackfoot Treaties by Hugh Dempsey, also another white guy. But it was recommended by, um, actually, Michelle said she has recommended it before, and also Mike Bruisedhead, who was the elder who spoke on uh, September 22nd, Treaty 7 day at uh, the University of Calgary. So I thought if if they both say it's okay, we'll give it a try there. Uh, June is Venco by Sherry Dimeline. July, Truth Telling Michelle Goodge. August, A Grandmother Begins the Story by Michelle Porter. September, Valley of the Bird Tale and Indian Reserve, A White Town and the Road to Reconciliation by Andrew Stobo Snyderman and Doug Sanderson. And October, White Women, Everything You Need to Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better by Sarah Rayo and Regina, Regina Jackson, um, who are the women who hold the- Race for dinner. Exactly, thank you. Um, and so they've written a, a book about it. So yes, we should read that. And then November is Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. So that's my year as well. And I'm also hoping like Michelle to get more folks in because basically who belongs to Settler Book Club are people from this book club. So I really appreciate that everyone here um, comes to my book club too. And hopefully we can get a few new folks in as well. Yeah, I'll try to promote us both. Um... I'm finding it interesting how many people are interested in having conversations with us now. So maybe I can, you know, always promote both in the hopes. I, I, honestly, I think sometimes it's just timing too. Like, you know, how people have a meeting every second Monday of the month or, or whatever. Like sometimes it's just that that is what makes it work for some people. So I, uh, I have a deep respect for that. So, yeah. All right. I, I still want to make a plug for separate beds about how the the Indian hospitals, how we were treated by the healthcare system. It's such a good book and it's only like 270 pages or something like that. So it's it's an awesome book. Okay, perfect. I just kind of put it in my chat to try to remember. Thank you, Kathy. Well, go ahead, so, Rosemary. And I, I know maybe I'm out of line here, but is there any way we could divide that report into two sections? That's a great months? idea. Yes, absolutely. Wait, do part November, part December, and then yeah, sure. thank you. Yeah, let's That's do that. Good. Yeah. No, I I uh, realized I was oh man, when I first started in 2006, I was like, academic book, academic book, academic book. And then I realized later, like this Tyler Shipley book that I read over the summer, he did uh, basically nine hours of breaking it down. In, and it was great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, man, I was tough at the start. <laughs> and ridiculous, right? Like we, we want to read the book we want, or we want to read the report and kind of dissect it and uh, discuss it as we go. So, um, so yeah, I appreciate that. I think what we'll do, uh, let me just have a quick look at my list um actually I can share screen I have it up so let's do that so that we can all look at it together here there we go all right let's share and I'm just getting my episode ready for tomorrow so November so the Making Space for Indigenous Feminism edited by Joyce Green we'll move that one to just uh January maybe 
and then that way because I don't even get the I don't have the book yet either so that works out for me anyway and I can ask for it for Christmas so that's how we'll do it we'll split it up between November and December and thank you no thank you appreciate it and can you send the link to the uh University of Calgary session with is it M Mike Brewstead on Treaty Seven? I'm sure it's on their on their uh, YouTube or yeah their YouTube. But I'll I'll try to dig up the link here and send it to you, Rosemary. Thank you so much. Yeah, in the hopes hopes that uh, people can watch it because yeah you're <laughs> supposed to sign up for it. So I don't know if the video is like a hidden one or if they have it publicly. Oh. I find that they usually go pretty public. So that's that's good. Because um, I think they just want that information out there, right? More than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, Treaty 7. Oh, man. Because everybody has a Treaty 7 like land acknowledgements. You'd be shocked at how hard it is to just dig up. <laughs> U of C. Maybe that'll be the U of C. Okay, I'll try to send that to you. I don't know Thank where you. it is right now, but I'll find it. So oh, I found it. Survey recording. And we're going to see if it's open to the public. It's on a Zoom. It's actually on their Zoom. So I am going to copy this and text it to Rosemary. See if this works. Paste. Can you email it? Can because text. Sure, and I will. Okay, if anybody wants that email, just throw your chat or your email in there, and I will. Actually, I'll just forward this. <laughs> forward to Rosemary. Nobody else. Okay, send. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, That's no great. problem. Yeah, just I need to watch it too. So I was just looking at their website and uh, it looks like they have a page where there might be quite several lectures that they've had. Um, so I just put that link in the chat as well. Yeah, the uh, email, it says recording. And when you click on it, it actually goes to their Zoom link. So I was mm -hmm. kind of surprised because like you're showing that link, their YouTube, like they have a YouTube, right? So, and it's pretty open. So that's, that's good. Um, and they give lots of free information there, which is good. So, yeah. All right, folks. Thanks again for everything. Thanks for all the good work you're doing as uh, with Settler Book Club, with Justice for um, Palestinians, all of the work you're all doing. I, I hope you know I see you and I appreciate you. And I hope that we, I hope we support each other as community care because we have to. Yeah.